uh, ask some response to some questions. And sometimes by, just by asking the question, you you find the answer yourself, which is <laughs> just because you suddenly realize what you what's bothering you or concerning you. And you look and you think, oh, you know, that's just a thought or something. A couple of questions around meditation, you know, which is, I suppose, the main main theme of this retreat is meditation. Do remember meditation is not the only way of practice. But to deal with breathing, when I'm doing mindfulness of breathing, how am I supposed to go back to breathing after breathing disappeared? and the mind becomes still for some time, then breathing reappears. Another question, can you elaborate, what is breath? Is it an energy, path, direction? How does one relate breath to the noble eightfold path? Well, it's how you approach it. So if you're a physician, surgeon, or medical person, you might called breath as this process of the air passing in and out of the lungs through the nostrils and you might also say oh yes when it gets into the lungs it mixes with carbon dioxide that moderates the oxygen rate and that makes the haemoglobin in the blood is able then to pick up the oxygen because it's at a certain level and then that is transferred to the body and then also the breathing out clears the lungs so you could look at it like that I don't think the Buddha was looking at it like that so if we know how does the Buddha sense breathing? Well, he talks about it in the Anapanasati Sutta uh, at some, in some detail. He seems to experience breathing as a, a quality that can persist through the body, uh, affects the body. It also seems to have an effect on the activities of the chitta. And it also seems to have an effect on the chitta itself. Uh, and it seems to be a basis for cultivating various aspects of insight. So this is where, of course, the um, breathing as air going in out of your lungs doesn't really work in terms of the chitta, the heart mind. Although we might note if we're perhaps uh, another kind of uh, physician, neurologist, you might say when the breath rate changes, the mental formations become calmer. That is, the person becomes calmer and more steady. If the breathing is long and um, refined, the heartbeat slows down, everything gets quieter. Energy, energy is very steady, you know, and there's a state of deep calm. So they might be able to notice that. And yeah, that's true too. But they probably still wouldn't necessarily notice how it affected the physical formation and the emotional or the neurological body. They might not know how it affected what it was to do with awareness. You know, I mean, breathing, what's that got to do with awareness? And yet in the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha talks about breathing in and out, thoroughly experiencing the awareness, heart, gladdening it, brightening it, and steadying it, and liberating it from harmful influences. So clearly this is not really about, air is not going to do that, is it? And the sensations that arise when the breath touches the nostrils isn't going to do that by itself. Um, so this, you see, 
you know, in Buddha Dharma, you don't really have such clear boundaries between the material and the immaterial, the physical and the psychological and the emotional and the spiritual. They're not, they're not, it's got hard boundaries. They kind of flow into each other. And the breathing is, is something that flows through all these. So it's an energy. There's certainly an energy involved with breathing. You know, it both takes energy to keep doing it. And it also gives energy. So if you breathe in long, take a long, strong in-breath, you feel the energy brighten up. And if you breathe out you know, steadily, repeatedly, you feel the energy level quietens. So yes, it affects energy. And that must affect the emotional aspects because our, our, our jiggling, rattling around mind begins to steady if the mind is placed onto it. Uh, its sense of insecurity begins to steady because we feel something comfortable and, and secure that we don't have to hold on to. Yeah, because it happens. We don't have to make it happen. Our sense of emotional uh, impulses that search for gratification become quiet because we're finding something that's very fulfilling and happy. So yes, when that energy is calmed and steadied, it has effects on our impulses, our what is summed up as mental formation, not very satisfying word, I would grant you. But the impulses of our heart and the rate of those impulses. So with deep practice, those impulses of the heart can become pretty slow and it could be periods where it just quietens down. The heart's not doing anything, just resting. Um, and in that state, because when you've cultivated awareness to that degree of steadiness and refinement through breathing, you know, actually tracking that process, then that energy that's present has become imbued in the way the mind operates. Right? Because we've now moderated our mental impulses with it so that the mind or the effective heart has now taken on that particular steady, relaxed, comforting, quiet, refreshing energy. It's taken it on. It's become suffused with it. So then your awareness then is not rushing around. It's able to rest in itself. Now, normally, the jitta is always looking for something to tag onto to keep it going. An idea or a thought or a memory, even if it's unpleasant, it seems to be inevitably hooked up to to some condition or another, you know, almost by reflex. Well, if the, if the awareness is held steady in that, but the energy is now contained, collected, then this awareness is no longer, you know, tethered to every thought, memory, feeling. What's that? You're sensing that. I see, then that has become protected, enriched, shaped from being scrambled, shaped into being something that's sublime, steady, bright, and has a bright awareness.
And then one is gladdened by it. You encourage, you say, go into this, enjoy. And uh, and then steadying it, and then clearing off these um, old habits, reflexes. Now, you might say, well, what's that got to do with that bit? What's that got to do with breathing? Well, because the breathing acts like, like the container. So, for example, if I'm doing an exercise, I might stand in the room, you know, and it keeps the rain off and it keeps the sun off and it keeps me warm. So I'm contained by that room. Yeah, now, if I wasn't contained by that room, I wouldn't be able to do my qigong properly because I'd be wet and cold and so forth. So, yes. That qigong depends upon the container that I'm in. That's a very crude model, really, because the breathing is much more than a container. It's also something that's stabilizing the atmosphere that the awareness is sitting within. So it can rest into its own, I don't know, quality and, and, and withdraw from these corrupting influences. So you might find that your physical breathing, you know, that stuff, purely physical, that is the action of the chest and the lungs and the blowing out the nostrils, that quietens down quite considerably, may disappear. Obviously, you, you are breathing, but it becomes so imperceptible. Or in fact, your attention is coming back into a state of quiet. It's kind of, oh, it's not longer interested in that level of reality because the sensory level of reality is by its nature it's it's relatively coarse compared with the heart the, you know level or the subtler levels are much more refined so once you're getting to something a bit more refined well you know why you can go there it's just it's quieter here so the breathing itself the physicality of it declines breath rate tends to slow down as you get calmer and you're less percipient of it and you may think what I'm supposed to do well what I'm suggesting is if you right in the early stages as you're following the physical sensations you also tune into the energy that gets those sensations operating the sensations in your body only occur because the body's muscles are flexing what causes them to flex it's an energy and as they do so, vitality moves through the system. And there's a vitality that flows along with the breath flow. So as you breathe in, um, you know, in a relaxed way, you might feel a tingling in your skin. You come up into your face. Just, the, just as you get to your inhalation, you complete it, or as it's coming to its completion. Just give some attention to your eyelids, skin on your face. Now, to me, that heightens, it becomes more sensitive. It's almost like a quiet smile, a certain shining. And with the, uh, you know, with the breathing out, you, you let yourself linger in the out breath, relax, breathe out. And similarly, you let your awareness trace down to the lowest part of your body that can feel the sensation, some of your lower abdomen, and just widen and soften 
and you may feel certain subtle effects moving into the legs. This is the energy, energy lines. Now, don't make a strain out of trying to feel things you don't feel, but what can you feel in terms of vitality, change of vitality as you breathe in and breathe out? And there's a regular pattern to it. And it's a regular pattern. It's like a dynamo. It builds up like you have a dynamo on a, on a, on a bicycle. As you pedal the dynamo, at least when I, when I had a bike many years ago, the dynamo would rub onto the tire. So as you, you pedaled, the dynamo was, you know, was connected to the tire of the wheel and it generated electricity. That's the principle of dynamos, isn't it? So this kind of is a kind of biological dynamo, this breath rhythm, if you tune into it, so it builds up a certain charge. Uh, this isn't through an act of the will. And it's not like suddenly it all blazes with light, but over time it builds up a certain warming charge. And as you're sensing that, you think, oh, that does suffuse the entire body. You know, and then you, you adjust your attention to that, to attend to that. And it's a different kind of attention because energy is not like a sensation. It's a much more suffusive quality rather than a discrete point that jumps. It's a suffusive, like a dawn quality, you know, when light suffuses, it's, it's a light form. In some your mind might even generate a sort of impression or image of light. You might feel light or something like that. You know, or you just feel warm, vitality. Uh, so, you know, uh, so that's the kind of um, what we call rupa, rather than karma, sensuality. It's it's energy, you see, and, and that but that's a whole different domain because sensation doesn't transfer into the, into the heart, but energy does. The body's energy the heart begins to drink it up and become brightened and steadied. And that's the whole kind of logic of, of, of mindfulness of breathing as a meditation. Hmm. Now, perhaps I've <laughs> taken quite a bit of time on that one. Um, but naturally, if, in terms of the Eightfold Path, because this is affecting your Chitta Sankara. Sorry about this word again, but this is your impulse directive, volitional energy, that which triggers your wishes and desires and fears and joys and loves, that which directs you. So if that's becoming steadied and, and purified by breathing, this is really a main feature of the Eightfold Path because you're setting your, your intentions right and you're also shifting your um, alliance to heart qualities rather than sensorial qualities. Mm -hmm. And if you want to cultivate it properly, then you generally means you've got to moderate your lifestyle to support it. Yeah. So you've got to live much more restrained, quiet, a steady lifestyle so that your nervous system isn't completely shot and, and, un, and unsteady and unbalanced. So it's much more supportive. So this really does affect lifestyle and it purifies intention. And naturally, samadhi, mindfulness, they're all part of that process. Okay, so 
The next question, what is awareness of awareness? How does that relate to the embodied practices that you teach? Well, what awareness, what is awareness? You try and find a Pali word for awareness. You know, you don't have to be a Pali scholar, but uh, clearly the Buddha was using a particular language structure. And so when we use English, we try to find out what the corresponding term is in in English. What, what does it correspond to? You know? Now, I think what you're talking about is chitta. And sometimes chitta is translated as awareness. Um, in other words, it's the potential to be aware. It's not a particular action we're doing, right? Potential to be aware. Now, some people could say that's consciousness, vijnana. Um, but I, without being too nitpicky, I do sense a difference in, the, in between those two terms. Um, because uh, consciousness can be hearing consciousness, sight consciousness, and so forth. And um, what we're really talking about is some aspect of mind consciousness. And uh, as I said, some before, jitta is the heart of mind consciousness. It's the hot spot. It's the place that leads the mind consciousness. It's the mind that receives what mind consciousness does to it. So it's. Somebody else asked a question. I've jumped onto that, actually. Since I've gone to that point, I might as well follow that question up and get back to awareness in due course. Someone's asked about the difference between mano, manas, and chitta, and vijnana. Well, okay. Well, vijnana is just the, what I've just described, you know, sound, touch, taste, fragrance, and so forth, just receiving impressions. And then the mind consciousness internalizes it or seems to internalize it. It creates a mental interpretation of that experience. So this function is called manas. Uh, so manas is a sense organ. So when I look out the window, what do my eyes see? Certain shapes. They see differentiations in color. They see two dimensions. They see a very dark line, then a, then a patch of blue, and then some, some sort of fuzzy shapes. So that's what they see. My mind says, oh, it's a tree. It doesn't think it, just immediately look at tree, looking at tree with the sky behind it. So there's a, there's a mental interpretation. Right? Now, you know, so that, that's that. That's what it is to me. To a squirrel, it's probably something different. To a lumberjack, it's probably a piece of timber. Yeah. Uh, uh, to, a, to a naturalist, it's probably, a, oh, that's a particular Quercus, Robo, Harponica, something or the other. Interesting specimen. To me, it's a tree. And the tree, that's the manas impression. When that touches the jitter, it goes, oh, nice tree. That's lovely. lovely shade, green, peaceful birds pleasant that's the chitta the chitta gives the kind of qualities the meaning qualities now the tree is easy now you see a person and what happens you know depending on whether you know them uh, how they strike you how they're dressed how big they are male female 
how they're walking, their body language, you get all kinds of impressions running in very quickly and the jitter's going, oh, I don't know about that person, I feel a bit nervous or this person looks a bit threatening or this person looks attractive or he looks like he's glad to see me or she looks like she's not glad to see me. So all this starts happening. That's jitta. Right. So jitta is both the sensitized but it also has a faculty or an aspect of it is just aware. So the image I use sometimes is of a lake. Chitta's like a lake. Now, the lake is always reflective, isn't it? You look in the water, it's always reflective. So that's awareness. You drop a rock in the water, it moves, it shimmers, but it's still reflective. You drop a leaf on the water, it shimmers, but it's still reflective. If you throw lots of rocks into the lake, the reflections are broken up into little sparkly fragments, but it's still reflective. <laughs> what we're doing in meditation is, is taking the rocks and the leaves off the lake so they can begin to settle down. And then we can be, how is this? One is mindful of awareness. You're mindful of awareness itself. It's the property of reflection, knowingness. Now, what I'm saying is that's always there for sure. But these embodied practices begin to stop stuff getting thrown into your lake. Because your thinking mind is not jumping into the lake all the time splashing around <laughs> because you're tuning to the earth that the lake sits in which is the body embodied quality so that it's steadied it's steadied it's protected it's not being interfered with having this we notice also to extend the metaphor actually the water penetrates even earth has water in it so this very body also has a kind of an aware potential. Mm -hmm. So we begin to really both not exactly don't create awareness, but you stop it being stirred up so that you notice it. You're not noticing the ducks and the weeds and the things being dumped into the lake. You're noticing the reflective. Oh because mindfulness of the body has you know, held your awareness within a domain where it's not being constantly impacted by thoughts, impressions, sense contact, memories, and irregular energies. So the lake is then steady. And you can do this moving, and you can do it sitting, and you can do it reclining. Whatever you do with a body, you can do awareness with it. Yeah. So this does help when we get so fixated on, you know, oh, I've got a painful back. How can I sit in meditation? Well, maybe you can't sit in meditation. Maybe you have to move around it. You know, you have to lie down. But you can still be aware and experience a sense of, oh, I can't meditate. I can't meditate. I'm not sad, disappointed. That phenomenon. Don't let it rattle your chitta. Don't let it jump into your lake. Keep it out. 
Okay? You're aware. You're aware of pain. You're aware of limitation. You're aware it's time to move. You're aware what supports. Do that. You know? Don't feel strapped to practices and conventions that are not working for you. Mindfulness is independent of a posture. Wisdom, you don't have to be sitting still to be wise. And awareness, you can feel sick and you can still have awareness. Sometimes it's the only thing you can have. So, you know, these, these are the predominant things. And then we, you know, if we do have that capacity to sit still, then there's a certain powering up of energy that can occur within that. It certainly is very supportive. But, you know, who's going to do that all day long? 20, no, not. So move, as it says, move with mindful, keep the reflective capacity to the fore. And then when you dip into it, there's no self, there's nobody here. Just knowingness. There's nobody. It's got no push, it's got no pressure, it's got no direction, it's not wanting anything, it's just aware. Wow, that's kind of... Right. Stop. This is to say how Nibbana is the unbinding of all these reflex habits of do something, think something, say something, get something going, make sure it's well, and stop. And that becomes possible through dwelling in awareness. There's impatience, restless and feeling like, what's the point of all this? This impatience and restlessness creates resistance to practice, especially in daily life, when there are easy distractions. How do I deal with this? Well, resolution is, is important and resolution, wise resolution, not just grit your teeth resolution, but wise resolution like uh, Come on, you know, there are so many easy distractions, it's true, it is easy. Um, do you really want this? It's the best. Mm. And, you know, when you feel, what's the point of all this? Do you know that voice? Bored, lethargic, apathetic, what's the point anyway? Do things need to have a point? Um, can there be a sense of, uh, you know, more deeply opening to, more deeply, don't miss this moment. It doesn't have to have a point, but there's a quality of presence that's possible for us every moment. And probably most of the time we're 20%, 30%, 40% present, and we've got something Oh, I'm right, I'll just be with this and then I'll go off and do that. Okay, I'll make sure that happens. And yeah, so we're kind of a bit present, but we've got motive, we've got agendas to get on to the next thing or, well, let's see how this goes and then I'll, I'll do something else. So just, can we just do like five minutes or so, just real, just full on being present with my life as it is right now because it's alive. 
not because it's good, not because it's wonderful, not because it's going to make me better. It's happening. Show up. <laughs> Show up for your life. And you do. Oh, only things have changed a little bit because, you know, we, oh, look, now what felt like, what's the point? I can see is, oh, this is really sad, deep sadness. And, ah, oh, well, let's see, how can I respond to that? So the more fully you're present with things, things speak more clearly. And you see, yeah, there is a point here to actually meet some of my sadness or my depression, you know. I'm really disappointed because the world is such a mess. I'm really broke down. I'm bummed out by it all. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, let's be with that. How is that? Really shove up for that. Get awareness around that. You need to hold your body up to do it, do it. If you want to walk to do it, walk. If you want to stand to do it, stand. Stay with it. Yeah. And Sutta, when he says, you know, he would be walking up and down in the jungle when he was unenlightened. And these various fears and things like this would be coming up. He says, I didn't stop walking until I moved through that boundary. I wouldn't let these feelings take over my mind. I just kept going. So part of one of the one of the hosts of Mara, the enemies, the meditations, this voice saying, Ah, oh, come on, you don't need to do that. Oh, boring or stuff. And actually tomorrow, right now you've got lots of things to do. This isn't getting anywhere anyway, so what's that? What's that? That's your enemy. Don't fall asleep when your enemy's in the room. Wake up. Who's saying that? Where does that come from? Show up. And a lot of the time that thing will go, oh, he's seen me. It'll disappear. <laughs> and sometimes you see, oh, this is just aversion or sadness. Now I've got a very clear thing to work with. So how do I know I'm cultivating well? This should be, uh, well, it should be um, less distraction, less need to fill your days up with things, um, less preoccupation, less tribunals going on your head about everybody else, about what happened to you, about the wrongs you've done to others or the wrongs you've had done to you. Less of that going on. You've cleared things. You've cleared some stuff. Um, there's a sense of um, one isn't trying to cram things in. We're able to meet pain, painful feeling without falling apart. We're able to meet painful mental emotions without denying them or, you know, suppressing it all or believing in it. And it's just coming into shape. You're getting in good shape. You're getting some bit of a firm, steady shape there for your chitta. That's how you know it's going well. How can a person who is OCD practice meditation? It's OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. This means a condition whereby people 
do repetitive things obsessively like you come into a room and you knock three times on the table when you come into the room or you leave the room you knock three times on the table when you go out of the room or when you come to the dinner you get your knife and fork and put them opposite sides of the plate you do things that on an external level seem pointless but they're almost ritualized and it's a, it seems to be something to do with sense of security because it gives you a definite thing you can be doing so what is needed is perhaps meditation what do you mean by that um, I think some lot a lot of general loving kindness is always useful for everything uh, slowing down is good um, and building in um, comfortable steady relationships with people because any obsession is is very much when you're kind of locked into yourself and sometimes meditation is not good for that because if you've got a, a mind that's always obsessed with itself tends to obsess into its own patterns and programs then you could be obsessively meditating just rehashing and, and people do of course <laughs> most of us <laughs> just sometime or another just get into our own, our own obsessions so you know steady careful ways of being with other people helps being in nature helps being with animals helps because animals well think well you know spiders and worms maybe not but horses definitely and dogs definitely you know they are, they are actually quite attuned to human beings so they easily respond to human beings and there's such a, a warm and trusting just you know, almost mammalian response that seems to have a very good effect on, on people mm-hmm. but nature in general because there's nothing no straight lines in nature and so you just ramble a little bit now if you want to do meditation fine but um, perhaps do walking yeah and basically loving kindness towards yourself and others which means we pick up a sense of first of all just whatever negativity there is just see if we can put that to one side and remember being liked by somebody at least once in your life (laughs) having somebody smile at you at least sometime in your life somebody smiled at you or, or maybe even today there was a beautiful moment when some, you felt somebody gave you something, offered something, cared for you, said gave you a good word. Focus on that. You get a sense of, oh, well, there is such a thing as, as, as love and I'm affected by it. And how would it be if I linger in that and take that in and allow myself to open to that? And then maybe there's beings, creatures, animals, friends, you can experience some of that too. So you bring that quality out to those who find easy, easy recipients. And so this is how you, you basically boost um, the, the loving capacity of heart. And don't think about, don't think about them, just love them. Don't think about yourself, definitely don't think about yourself. Because uh, uh, you're looking through the wrong lens. But feel for yourself that's going to give you strong heart and this will certainly have a steadying effect person asks about 
guidelines for 32 parts of the body meditation. Um, well, it seems to be, I, I haven't really done this a lot myself. Um, because I suppose because it fundamentally generally seems to deal with either sexual desire or uh, vanity over one's appearance. Um, and I kind of feel more prevalent these days is depression and anxiety. And uh, self-hatred is much more common or a deeply rooted problem. So I tend to focus on things like metta and soothing meditations. But, okay, it's there. Uh, there's 32 parts. It helps to see the not-self nature of body. You know, the body which we so identify with, the shape, particularly just the superficial surface of it, that's a pretty thin layer. <laughs> You only have to take a couple of millimetres off the surface and it's not, not looking like me anymore. <laughs> and the deeper you go, <laughs> the stranger it gets. <laughs> Sometimes we look at um, videos of um, what they call autopsy. So you see this person lying down on the back. Okay. And it suddenly takes a knife and just slices down the middle of you. Whoa, what's that? And then thing opens up. There's this kind of dark coloured masses of glistening organs and bones. You think, wow, where, where did that person go? You know. <laughs> and then most important thing is when they peel the face off like a rubber glove. And then there's nobody there. It's just meat. And you think, wow, all that stuff is there all the time. It's just because of the outward package the outward skin layer that we make so much of but if we begin to just see or even bear in mind what's present there it doesn't give rise to a sense of a person yeah and when we begin to see like um sexual desire as a kind of projection onto a very changeable um, surface now, of course, you know, I don't want to go into the whole nature of um, sexuality and people's relationships because there's a lot more going on than just purely, you know, um, attraction to the physical shape. There's energies, there's companionship, there's warmth, there's trust and so forth. This is all not the topic. But this does help to, you know, curb the really, you know, raw animal stuff. <laughs> that can jump up we're saying well actually it's just the body you know and then looking at this one it's just the body you know don't make such a big issue of it one way or another and then you can actually recollect things like liver lungs and then fluids and you can do it systematically till you get a, like a nimiter a, a kind of perception arises in the mind of like a, just the um, just that you, you like you're looking at um, just a series of shapes, organs, rather than a rather than a stuck together person, and the mind becomes very cool and dispassionate. That's all it is. There's nobody in here. That's all it is. What was all that about?
So looking at thoughts and contemplate, sometimes they stop and fade away. Is there another kind of external created thought which show up like a movie continuously? And I was not aware that my craving or involvement was in that. Well, I'm not entirely sure what you mean, but it may be the case, for example, that you're, you know, you're getting thoughts coming from newspapers or videos or, you know, so they're not, they're just basically just repeating what you've been seeing in the world around you rather than coming from your own um, history or your own uh, values or your own sorrows or joys. It's coming from just headlines and stuff like that. But then there's still some sense of involvement with it because we should really, well, first of all, guard the faculties and also understand the nature of thought. It's just uh, it's just a way of expressing something and it can be both conditioned. It means it's got definite limitations to it as to its understanding. Person having problems with relatives passing away, best friend, two brothers, father, mother will pass away within four years suddenly. Difficult sitting with the feelings. Would you recommend a practice to help this, please? Well, loving kindness practice, gratitude practice, blessing practice, bless them, wish them well. If you're feeling rocky and unsteady yourself, um, good to be with other people, good to be with nature. Um, don't linger in obsessive thinking of a depressing nature or a sorrowing nature. Acknowledge you're not feeling very strong. You feel fragile, oversensitive. You need to be in mourning. And mourning is a useful um, process whereby you signify to others, often by wearing black. I'm not into parties, lightweight conversation. I need to be reflective and quiet and very sensitive at the moment. So this is a way of, and then you contemplate, may they be well, you know, and also when somebody you know dies, a bit of you dies too. So you feel a bit empty and open, but okay. Okay, open, empty place. Don't try and fill it up with cheerfulness. And it becomes very beautiful. It's your way of sharing, sharing that transition that people go through. You're with their parting. They were there and now they're gone. Stay with the space. And actually there's a gift in that. Because that's what we all do. And what stays is the space. Where the mind is quiet and the heart feels touched. Problem with standing meditation, heart beats fast, what is going on? Trying to relax, can't breathe easily. Soles of the feet are hot, seems like a fear response. Can you explain what's happening? Wouldn't count upon it. If it's a fear response, it may be you need to slightly move because it's something needs to be reassured. Therefore, contact with the ground is very important. 
and maybe your contact with the ground has to be a little more dynamic. Uh, you know, in other words, moving contact gives you a little more input in terms of sensations and energy than standing still. Right? If you stand still, you know, the pressure of your feet on the ground, you really relax into it. The contact there and the, the energy that it takes for the foot to sustain that, that's definitely coming through. But if you're moving your foot around, you're getting even more energy moving around. So that may be more comforting or, or stabilizing. It seems if fear is the quality, then you should be looking at getting grounded. And also the space around you, check out and keep remembering and asking yourself, does it feel safe here? Do I feel safe in this space? What would make me feel safe? How does my body express itself when I feel safe? I feel open. If I don't feel like that, what's going on? So check the safety. Person finds it easy to recognize the feelings accompanying anger, fear, anxiety, confusion. They can recognize the, the feeling, the quality of pleasure or pain, I expect. But certain obstacles like restlessness, self-indulgence, torpor and boredom, I don't seem to be able to see or recognize the feeling that gives rise to them, the Vedana. So I find it difficult to abandon them. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. it seems the first list, anger, fear, anxiety, are much pretty primary emotions to do with security and threat. So your body would give a very strong signal for that. Uh, so you'd get that. It's much easier to get. When you get something like restlessness, it's not so life and death. It's not a, it's just a, it mean it's not comfortable though, is it? So you can ask yourself what it's not. Restlessness has no rest in it. How is that? Is that agreeable? No, it's not agreeable. But then we're referring more to the mental impression, the emotional impression of restlessness. So it's a mental feeling. But you may not notice it because it's kind of quiet and is buried by the restless activity. This is called a Ouija, when we've got certain seemingly automatic activities of heart. We don't know what's causing them. So you need to question them. Restlessness. How is this? It's just a, you need to do that. Yeah, but how does it feel? Well, it feels OK. Do you want more of it? No. It means it's unpleasant. What would it be like to be without it? Mm. Mm. Be nice. Therefore, it's unpleasant. But maybe you don't really need to know that so much as um, you know, remedying it. Uh, remedying restlessness by this is unpleasant, it's doing me harm. They're going nowhere useful. And if you try to resist restlessness, then you'll certainly feel it's unpleasant. Feel like ants crawling all over you. So stay steady, go slow, and then you, you begin to calm and steady the nervous system. 
slow torpor is also a negative state. I want to get away. I don't want to be with this. It's boring. Is boring pleasant? No. It's unpleasant. Unpleasant Vedana. Yeah, mind is fine, but the mind finds something unpleasant, not stimulating. Would like it to go away, like something else to happen, which means it's unpleasant. Again, perhaps it's not so important to notice that so much as to, this is doing me no good. Uh, apply your attention to investigate the body, investigate feeling, investigate what's present. So you kind of put more energy into your practice. Looking at Sankara and conditions. So this is more theoretical. Someone's asking about Vijnana consciousness in dependent origination, consciousness in the five aggregates. Um, fourth aggregate. So, so the five aggregates form. So the experience of form. So jitta, as it manifests, as it gets experience, experience happens, jitta experiences things in terms of form. Something has a presence rather than an absence. It arises. There's consciousness. There's definitely a channel that's bringing that in. Visual consciousness, mind consciousness, tactile consciousness, taste consciousness. So right, that's happening. You can't have a form unless you're conscious. In other words, you have to be conscious in order to experience a form of some kind. But it's also the case that, you know, if there's no form, you can't have a consciousness of it. So they're mutually dependent. Um, you also have when consciousness brings in feeling. This is the second aggregate feeling. Um, third aggregate perception, the mind interprets it in a certain way. This is beautiful, this is ugly, this is polite, this is hostile, this is tasty, this is nauseating, this is stinky, this is sweet. Perceptions arise. They categorize experience into certain meanings. Sankaras, sankaras are the volitional impressions and impulses that arise dependent upon perceptions. Fourth aggregate, fifth aggregate consciousness, all this is happening in the conscious moment. Now it's conditioned means you know you can't have a perception unless there's something to perceive. So perception is conditioned it means it depends upon something to perceive. You know and for example if you've say you lived in a cave for all your life and then some car appeared you'd never seen a car before uh, what's that? You know, <laughs> you wouldn't have a perception of it, so you wouldn't be thinking about cars until. So you, that perception depends upon some object manifesting that you can perceive. So it doesn't exist independently. It's conditioned upon the appearance of an object to have a perception of, and also dependent upon a meaning being created by sankara. So see a physical object perception it's a car yeah. because I've learned that shape means car when I was six months old I didn't know that but I learned oh, that thing that object there is a car so that perception has been created 
has been sankharad conditioned through intention to understand things. And kids, as you know, we're desperate to understand everything. So we start naming everything. We acquire a library of perceptions. That's the conditioning process and it's led by Sankara. Sankara is the conditioning agent that creates, generates, modifies, uh, shapes things up. Then we get established perceptions. That's a man, you know, that's a monk, you know, that's a whatever, you know, cook. You know. And that moderates how we react to them. So that person has been conditioned by my perception and memories. Yeah. And also there could be prejudices, like I think monks are fantastic. Well, some are, some aren't. I think monks are stupid. Some are, some aren't. But if you have a background perception of prejudice, you know, like all Indians are stupid or something, <laughs> you know, and this is the kind of thing that happens. You categorize dependent upon your own fear, ignorance or bias. So. When we realize it this way, we realize the world we live in is all conditioned by perceptions, meanings, impressions, feelings, having visual consciousness of a human being rather than eagle. Eagles see things differently. Butterflies see things differently. If you take a dog to New York, he doesn't look at the fashions. He smells the urine <laughs> or, the, or the diesel in the street. So what's New York for a dog? It's not Broadway. It's the smell of hamburgers, because yeah. right, it knows conscience. So is New York a hamburger to you? No, it's kind of theatres or museums or something. So the world is conditioned. And so this is helpful to recognize because fundamentally we get so trapped in this created world. We get so formed by it and led by it. And of course, most powerfully conditioned thing is the thing called myself. This strange phenomenon, which is a conditioned reality. Now, if the conditions that support that are seen as unnecessary, they can be put aside and this condition doesn't have to keep happening. So that's the big picture of conditionality and Sankaras. There's a sankara called ahankara, which creates ahankara. It creates the sense of identity. It's a created thing through clinging to perception, labeling it, labeling myself as the one who perceives. But actually, what perceives? A moment of mind, which then changes. This is a lot to take in. Um, but um, this is not a lightweight topic and it may not be necessary for you to give much thought to, but there might be a point or two in there uh, why Sankara is probably the most significant point because this is the action bit that's happening in your mind. And notice how you are trained to act in certain ways and you are conditioned to act in certain ways. And you've got a cheap checking. Is this useful? Is it helpful? Is it supporting well-being? Then you change your karma. We're conditioned to be attracted to bright objects, particular flavors, particular tastes and sounds. Is this doing you any good? Can you change that habit? 
Is it helpful? Think of questioning. And you pause, relax. No, you don't need to follow that. Then there's a space. Oh. A moment of liberation. So I wish you well with your ongoing practice. Remember, you know, again, Chitta Sankara, the emotional impulses and lingering, using your body to ground yourself so you're not just jumping around and using your body presence to stop yourself going out through your eyes because you're really present here. You're not going out with your thoughts. Your energy is contained within your body so it doesn't jump out through the eyes doesn't jump out into thoughts it probably will but at least you've kind of got some anchoring on it uh, and then you start drive your energy your attention back into being present in your own body so it's not just thrown out by every thought that comes along then you can begin to relate to them those thoughts and impressions and see which ones you want to support which ones you want to let pass which ones you want to get hold of and just start to massage hey what's this about Come on, you know, freshen up. You know? And this is all Sankara, of course. This is skillful Sankara to investigate and explore. Um, so this is uh, my recommendation and my support and encouragement for your practice. So please do as you see fit. <laughs>